Broadcasting from a secret room in a small picturesque town tucked somewhere in New England, 177 feet above sea level, this is Mr. Haunted for In Dark Places. The music, a little tribute to the man who started it all for most of us, Art Bell. Lock your doors, check under your bed, get under your covers, kids. Tonight's episode is about curses, and it's going to be a spooky one. My name is Jumbo Fugit. Howdy. This is episode 116. It's funny, Hart Bill's been dead for five years now. I still listen to him all the time. The internet's good for something at least. I forgot to mention last week on the show that the Bilderberg Group had their fancy annual shindig in Lisbon, Portugal. That's one of the many groups where the elites get together and they dance around naked around their little owl statue. Like Bohemian Grove. I guess they do it in all those little get-togethers, I don't know. But the Bilderbergs, they had about 130 participants from 23 countries. They all came together and talked about your future and how they're going to rule you. The main topic this year was artificial intelligence. And if you use any of that artificial intelligence junk, you should just burn it right now because all that junk is demonic. This is Mr. Haunted, your In Dark Places news correspondent, with breaking news and breaking curse news. Breaking news. And this is breaking Harry Potter news. Elementary school yanks Harry Potter over claims it contains actual curses and spells. Students at a Catholic elementary school in Tennessee will no longer be able to borrow copies of the Harry Potter book series after a pastor there outlawed them, claiming they contain real curses and real spells. Reverend Dan Rehill informed St. Edward Catholic School parents that the seven-tome fantasy series would be banned from the Nashville School's library after he consulted with several exorcists in the U.S. and Italy who suggested they be removed. These books present magic as both good and evil, which is not true, but in fact a clever deception. Rehill told parents, the Tennessee reported Sunday, Saturday, <laughs> the curses and spells used in the books are actual curses and spells, which when read by a human being, risk conjuring evil spirits into the presence of the person reading the text, he continued. The fictional novels, penned by British author J.K. Rowling and published between 1997 and 2007, the best-selling book series in history and have sold more than 500 million copies worldwide, according to Fortune. But many religious groups claim the books are based on satanic teachings and are a blatant celebration of the occult. 
As recently as this past April, a group of Catholic priests in Poland torched the books, claiming they were sacrilegious. Rehill was out of the office until Wednesday, but Rebecca Hamill, a superintendent of schools for the Catholic Diocese of Nashville, said the pastor was well within his authority to cast out the best-selling series. Each pastor has canonical, canonical authority to make such decisions for his parish school. Hamill told the Tennessean, confirming that Rehill sent an email about removing the books. Hamill said the Catholic Church did not have a position on the books and that the series remained in other schools throughout the diocese. Rowling, an outspoken and prolific user of Twitter with 14 million followers, has yet to comment on the ban. Huh. Very scary. Thanks, Jimmy. The story was sent in by our friend James. Thanks, James. UFO in plain sight. At least 50 Marines witnessed and recorded UFO phenomenon. By David Wetzel. Thanks, David. Another mysterious UFO sighting has been uncovered. On April 20th, 2021, a UFO shaped like a triangle with five red lights was witnessed and caught on video at Camp Wilson in 29 Palms, California. At least 50 U.S. Marines serving at the base saw the phenomenon and recorded the craft hovering in the sky for about 10 minutes before it vanished without a trace. This is something none of us had seen before. It was a completely different color, the size, and the illumination was different. One Marine told the Daily Mail, when we shoot illumination rounds, it's one. You shoot in the air, you let it drop, and then you shoot another one. This was like five right next to each other. And they're kind of reddish. And our illumination rounds are yellow-white color. The footage shot by Marines on their smartphones appears to depict five lights arranged in a triangular formation. One stunning picture captured an officer at Camp Wilson showed the apparently triangular object with lights on its edges above the desert mountains. After the sightings, Marines said that dozens of trucks and multiple helicopters rushed to the location, with the helicopters flying overhead until about 11.30 p.m. on that night. Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp acquired six pieces of film footage which documented the event from two angles as well as an accompanying photograph that they released through their podcast, Weaponized. If that was not enough for the onlookers to process, they also reported additional peculiar lights circling the object throughout the sighting. Illumination rounds were eventually fired over the UFO by Marines, which was captured in one of the videos. The size of the UFO was estimated to be anywhere between that of a stealth bomber or being equivalent to the size of a three-bedroom house and half the size of a football field, depending on who you asked in the viewing party. The incident has striking similarities to the controversial Phoenix Lights case, where a giant triangular-shaped UFO was spotted in 1997. 
by hundreds of people, including then-Arizona Governor Fife Symington. The witnesses involved are struggling to find an explanation for what they saw that night and have been baffled ever since. I'm still trying to make sense of what we saw, said the artilleryman. As of now, there has been no contact with the UFO and officials from Camp Wilson have yet to make any public comments regarding the incident. <laughs> Big surprise there. And now here is your Nicolas Cage meal down of the week. It's too high. Use me as a human stool. Do it! Grab my hand! Grab it! You're heavier than you look! I have a very big head. Enormous. An enormous head. I'm not gonna make it, am I? You tell Gabriela I will miss her. You can tell her yourself! No, it's okay. You go live a good life! I'm not going anywhere without you! Now grab my hand, soldier! But then we will both die and I could never live with myself after that, so you let go! You let go! Goodbye, Nicholas Cage. So we're talking about curses here, and I came across this website which is severely outdated called MrHaunted.com, which I tried to uh, not pay for so it disappears, but it's still up there somehow. Anyways, Dudleytown has been called the most haunted place on earth. Founded in 1740, it was a thriving small town complete with houses and streets. By the late 1800s, there was no one left. The only memories of this old town are crumbled foundations and cellar holes. Only 150 years ago, this, and I have a picture there, was the busiest road leading to Dudleytown. Murder, hysteria, and suicide were frequent in Dudleytown. It all seemed to have started with a supposed curse given the Dudley family almost 500 years ago from King Henry VIII. Here is a brief story of Dudleytown. In 1510, King Henry VIII beheads Edmund Dudley. 1533, Edmund's son, John, was beheaded in a plot to overthrow the king. 1554, John's brother and wife beheaded in another plot. These Dudleys are a problem. 1740, four Dudley brothers settle in Cornwall, Connecticut. 17-something, we're not sure, Abiel Dudley goes mad and his brother is cut to pieces. 
Nathaniel Carter is found hacked to pieces. William Tanner goes mad, sees ghosts and demons. General Swift's wife is struck and killed by lightning. General Swift goes mad. In 1872, Mary Greeley hangs herself. Husband Horace Greeley dies insane shortly after. 1892, the Brophies, Dudley Town's last family. The wife dies. Two sons disappear. Their father, Patrick, stumbles into town, raving about cloven-hoofed beasts. In 1924, Dr. and Mrs. Clark made their summer cottage here after, two business, after a two-business-day trip. Dr. Clark returns to find his wife a raving lunatic who complains of ghosts and demons pursuing her the rest of her life. Um, so this is a personal experience. Uh, th there's a rumor that the uh, the old main road, which is now overgrown and it's just like a path, um, there's this fallen tree. And as soon as you go past this fallen tree across the path, everything becomes silent. Um, the birds start chir stop chirping, the uh, crickets, everything's just dead quiet. And... Um, then, one time we were there, we heard, um, there's fireworks outside. I hope they're fireworks. Um, <laughs> so we heard these kind of like uh, hollow sounds like down the trail. We couldn't understand what they were. And they were getting closer and closer and louder and louder until they were like right upon us. And then they went the other way. And the only thing we could make sense out of it, it sounded like, uh, you know, a horse and carriage trotting down the street on an old like cobblestone road and then passed us by and then went um on the road another time um we'd left the tape recorder back in the olden days we didn't do real-time evps we only had a tape recorder we left the tape recorder in one of the old cellar holes and i left it there about half an hour or so and then we went to replay it later and we heard um, little children's laughing which is always creepy and uh and then later we told uh, somebody who seemed to know about the place. I said, yeah, we left the tape recorder over there. And they go, oh, that's the old schoolhouse. So, whatever. Anyways, the place is definitely haunted. And even if you don't believe the cursed story, um, it's now uh, a home to uh, many satanic worshippers who I'm sure are stirring up some weird stuff anyway. So that is the curse of Dudleytown, Connecticut. Thank you. Chief Cornstalk's Curse. We talked about this on the Mothman shows, but I think it's time we do a little deep dive on it. This story is by Fred O'Neill. Thanks, Fred. A tradition in my mother's family says that our ancestor, Parker Atkins, was on friendly terms with the Shawnee Indians and may have sired a daughter by Blueski, a daughter of the famous Chief Cornstalk. However, when war became unavoidable, he joined the Virginia Army of Colonel Andrew Lewis and participated in the October 10, 1774 Battle of Point Pleasant, an engagement West Virginians like to call the First Battle of the American Revolution because it involved British prohibitions against settlement in the Ohio 
Valley, and because the Virginians felt that the royal governor, Lord Dunmore, had betrayed them by not coming to their aid at the mouth of the Kanawha. Parker Adkins' name is inscribed on the battle monument at the Two Indy Wee Park in Point Pleasant. Although he and his warriors fought valiantly, Cornstalk lost the 1774 battle. Three years later, he and another Indian named Red Hawk arrived at Fort Rudolph to warn settlers that the British were inciting the younger Shawnees to attack American settlements. He drew maps for the Americans to help them in the coming conflict. Later he was joined by his young son, Elanipsico, and all were detained at the fort for interrogation. On November 10, 1777, when a member of a hunting party was found dead and scalped across the Kanawha, an angry mob of Rockbridge County militiamen overruled Captains Arbuckle and Stewart and stormed the cabin where the Indians were kept and shot them down in cold blood. In a conversation a few years ago with a D.A.R. lady at the Point Pleasant Museum, I was told that the chief's daughter, Bluski, after hearing of the deaths of her father and brother, committed suicide, and that Parker Atkins took his nine-year-old daughter back to his farm in southwestern Virginia, where she was welcomed into his family and became my great-great-great-great-aunt, Charity Atkins. This is why our people are more than familiar with the story of Cornstalk's Curse. This popular bit of folklore alleges that sometime during his captivity at Fort Randolph, Cornstalk, realizing that death was at hand, made a speech that went something like this. I came to your house as a friend, and you murdered me. You killed my young son, Elanipsico. For this, may the curse of the Great Spirit rest upon this spot. May it be cursed by nature. May its hopes forever be blighted. He further stated that the white man would conquer the valley, but his unlimited greed would cause the land to become uninhabitable, the water undrinkable, and the air unbreathable. During the century following Cornstalk's death, the town was plagued by floods, fires, and other natural disasters. On July 21, 1909, the crane that was to be used to set up the battle monument in Wee Park was struck by lightning and the dedication ceremony was postponed. On July 4, 1921, the monument itself was damaged by another lightning strike. The second century brought disaster to the entire Ohio Kanawha Valley region. Most of these disasters were not caused by Mother Nature, but by human beings in their pursuit of land and profit. These include the December 1907 Monaga mine disaster that killed 310 miners in the Kanawha Valley. The pollution of large areas around Point Pleasant by munitions manufacturing between World Wars I and II. A 1953 barge explosion that killed six men at Point Pleasant. The Silver Bridge collapse that killed 46 motorists the week before Christmas 1967. 
the November 14, 1970 plane crash in Huntington that took the lives of the entire football team of Marshall University. The 1970 bombing of the Mason County Courthouse that claimed four lives. The February 1972 Buffalo Creek Dam collapse up the Kanawha Valley from Point Pleasant. The January 1978 derailment of a freight train carrying toxic chemicals that permanently damaged all Point Pleasant water wells. And the 1978 Willow Island disaster at St. Mary's, West Virginia that killed 51 workers. In the third century after Cornstalk's murder, the effects of the curse may have intensified with the 1994 shell chemical explosion at Belpre, Ohio that killed three workers. The 2006 Sago Mine disaster that killed 13 miners. A 2007 barge accident downriver near Kentucky that dumped 8,000 gallons of toxic fuel into the Ohio. The April 5th 2010 Upper Big Branch mine disaster that claimed 29 lives, and last but not least, the January 9th, 2014 Elk River chemical spill that cut off water supplies to 300,000 residents of nine counties in West Virginia and remains unsolved to the present day. We might also add to this list the numerous recent accidents connected with the hydraulic fracturing process. These would include numerous fires, explosions, and unexplained accidents connected with drilling for shell gas or the transportation and injection of toxic waste materials. In the latter category, we might include the 4.0 magnitude earthquake on January 31, 2011, near Youngstown, Ohio, the 2.6 magnitude quake that rocked Marietta on September 4, 2011, or the 3.5 magnitude tremor of November 20th, 2013 that shook Athens County. Or can we omit the May 2014 toxic waste spill at a Morgan County well site? Or the two most recent June 2014 explosions in Belfry and upriver in Monroe County? Or should we just regard Cornstalk's curse as silly superstitious nonsense brought about by collective guilt over our treatment of Native Americans. As a confirmed skeptic of such nonsense, I tend to believe that Shakespeare was correct in saying, The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. So yeah, to make a long story short, some people think that Mothman is part of Chief Cornstalk's curse. Who knows? Hard to say. Those fingers in my head that slide come hither stand. This story that strips my conscience bare comes from Bucksport, Maine. A drive along Maine's craggy coast is annoyingly picturesque. Pretty little towns and roads are clotted with leisure drivers. No, let's say leisure. Leisure drivers. When all you really want is a clear path to the cursed tomb of Colonel Buck. Perhaps the curse can be blamed for the traffic problems. People in this part of Maine can pin practically anything on that damned tomb. The tomb of the town's founder, Colonel Jonathan Buck, features a mysterious stain 
the image of a woman's stocking-clad foot, or maybe perhaps a boot. The leg stain on the memorial, according to legend, came about when Colonel Buck burned a witch and her leg rolled out of the bonfire. His heirs tried to clean the foot off the stone and are said to have re replaced the monument twice, but the foot keeps coming back. The curse was called down upon the colonel by the deformed son of the witch. That's creepy in itself. The deformed son said, Your tomb shall bear the mark of a witch's foot for all eternity. Or something like that. Not the most horrifying of curses when you think about it. I think it is. The legend of the mysterious tomb of Bucksport grew and mutated over the centuries fully forming as a tourist attraction when locals started selling postcards. Out-of-staters poured into town to see the ghostly smudge. The town, recognizing a good thing, has upgraded the cursed tomb experience in recent years. There is now a little parking area next to the cemetery and a wheelchair-friendly concrete ramp. You know, you want to be friendly to your uh, handicapped paranormal investigators and curiosity seekers leading right up to the cursed monument. You can photograph it through the wrought iron fence. Probably best not to touch it anyway. Many visitors note another stain high up on the monument in the shape of a sideways heart. This may signify that Buck had either a secret love of the witch or of women's feet. An accompanying plaque on the site lists some facts about Colonel Buck, noting that he was an honorable, industrious man and that he built the first boat in Bucksport. So, what really happened, anyway? No one really knows, but here are some points to consider. No witches were ever put on trial in Maine. Colonel Buck was a justice of the peace. He didn't have the authority to try and burn anyone. Colonel Buck was born in 1719, long after the last witch was killed in America. And no witches were ever burned in America, so this article claims. The stain appears on a monument erected in Colonel Buck's memory 75 years after he died, on March 18, 1795. His actual grave is in another part of the cemetery, and his real tombstone is unblemished. Then again, if you are going to the trouble of inflicting an eternal curse, you'd want it on that big buck monument right up front, where everyone would know about it. All these later, all these years later, they still do. It's almost Father's Day here in a couple weeks, so here's a story that my dad used to like to tell every springtime, pretty much. When all the trees were budding out and everything, he would talk about the curse of the dogwood tree. In Jesus' time, the dogwood tree had grown to a great size, like that of an oak tree, and they used it to build the cross 
that Jesus was hung on. Like back in those days, they were common to use to build crosses with. They would use dogwood trees. So, Jesus put a curse on the dogwood tree so that it would never again grow large enough to build a cross. Its branches would be narrow and crooked, not good for building at all. And now the dogwood tree has many traits to remember this curse. The dogwood flower has four petals, shaped like a cross. The middle of the dogwood flower is a crown of thorns. At the edge of each petal is a nail dent. The nail dents are stained with the color of Jesus' blood. So that's a fun little story that my dad used to talk about all the time. All these scary curses, you gotta lighten it up a bit. This is called the Billy Goat Curse on the Chicago Cubs. There are also a lot of superstitions in the world of sports. One of the most famous is the supposed Billy Goat Curse on the Chicago Cubs. In 1945, a tavern owner named William Billy Goat Cyanus was reportedly prevented from bringing his pet goat, Murphy, into Chicago's Wrigley Field to see the Cubs play the Detroit Tigers in the World Series. Supposedly, Cyanus put a curse on the Cubs, saying they wouldn't win this or any other World Series ever again. Before this, the Cubs had only won the World Series twice before, in 1907 and 1908. When they lost the World Series in 1945, the curse gained credence. In 2016, when the Cubs won the World Series for the first time in over a century, U.S. media promoted the idea that the curse was broken. The Billy Goat curse is similar to the curse of the Bambino, which supposedly began when the Boston Red Sox traded Babe Ruth, great move, in 1919, and ended when the team won the World Series in 2004. There's also rapper Lil B's curse on Kevin Durant, which Lil B issued in a 2011 tweet and lifted in 2017 in another tweet when the Golden State Warriors won the NBA Finals that year with Durant earning MVP. Sports media jokingly proclaimed that Lil B had helped by lifting the curse. The Curse of the Boy King Soon after the discovery of King Tut's tomb, several of those involved in the excavation became ill or died. Were they, as many people believed, the victims of a dreadful mummy's curse? Humphrey Evans investigates. Thanks, Humphrey. On April 30th, 1923, a small group of people gathered on Beacon Hill, high up on the ridge of Downland, running across Northwest Hampshire for a funeral. They were there to bury George Edward Stanhope Molyneux Herbert the fifth Earl of 
Carnivon. We'll just call him George for short. At a spot that looked out over his home. Highclere Castle. And the spreading estate that he had owned. The Earl had died in what many were to come to regard as strange circumstances. Over the years, he had paid for the excavations that had led just five months before to the discovery of the tomb of King Tut, with its treasures stored up to guarantee the king's well-being in the afterlife. Carnivon's death, coming so soon after the find, and so inexplicably stirred up the fantasies of a dreadful link across the centuries of the young king reaching out to his tomb's despoiler of the curse of King Tut. Carnivon's involvement with the royal tomb dated back some 15 or 20 years. In 1901, while driving in the German spa of Bad Schaubach, he overturned his car. As a result of this accident, which badly damaged his chest, he had difficulty in breathing. His doctor suggested that he should spend the winters somewhere warm and dry. In those days, Egypt was a favorite haunt, and Luxor a fashionable resort with its hotels, its antiquities, and its excursions to see the excavations in the Valley of the Kings. Carnivon became interested in Egyptology, returned year after year, tried his hand at archaeology, and eventually, in 1907, took on 33-year-old Harold Carter as his advisor. Carter had come to Egypt at the age of 17 and worked as a droughtsman for archaeologists such as William Flinders Petrie and Edward Neville. He subsequently took up a post in the Antiquities Service and supervised excavations in the Valley of the Kings. Then, after a dispute in which he felt he was in the right, he resigned. For the next four years, he supported himself by guiding tourists through the Valley of the Kings and by selling watercolor sketches of the scene. Carnivon had paid him 400 pounds a year. The aim was to find unrifled graves that would yield a reward in collectible antiquities. During the next 15 years, even throughout the upheavals of the First World War, Carter delved on Carnivon's behalf, discovering the occasional interesting tomb, but hardly turning up enough collectibles to justify the outlay that would eventually total about 40,000 pounds. By 1922, Carnivon wanted to call things off. Carter visited him at Highclere, persuaded him to authorize one more season's digging, and perhaps in celebration, bought himself a canary. When he arrived back in Luxor at the end of October, his Egyptian workers told him that the yellow singing bird would bring luck. On November 1st, they began digging in the last untouched area of the valley, a two and a half acre triangle. On November 4th, they found a sunken stairway entrance. By the 5th, they knew it marked a sealed tomb. Carter cabled Carnivon, who came out from England with his daughter, Evelyn, and on December 26, after clearing away the rubble, they broke through the blocked-in doorway. Carter was the first to peer in. 
According to the report that Carvon sent the Times, he told the others, There are many marvelous objects here. Carter himself, writing years later, remembered Carvon asking anxiously if he could see anything and recorded his own reply. Yes, wonderful things. Late that night, a secret expedition took place and was not revealed in detail until over half a century later in Thomas Hooving's book, Tatiakman, The Untold Story. Carnivon, Lady Evelyn, Carter, and his assistant Arthur Pecky Callender crept into the tomb and burrowed their way into the inner chamber, discovering the golden shrines that surrounded the golden coffins containing the mummy of Tatiakman. Later, as the tomb was cleared, the world would marvel at the life-size figures of the king with gilded kilt and headdress. The golden throne with his inlaid scene depicting the king and his wife. The jewelry that is a heady combination of beaten gold and semi-precious stones. The inner coffin made of solid gold and so heavy that it took eight men to lift. And the burnished golden mask on the mummy itself which with its eyes of lapis lazuli, obsidian, and quartz, and its decorated headdress and beard, symbolized the dead king. as the god Osiris, ruler of the dead. Carter and Carnivon now knew exactly what they had found, the virtually undisturbed resting place of King Tatietman. In the days that followed, they staged an official opening of the outer chamber, began their preparations to move the contents out and announced their discovery to the world. In the midst of the excitement, however, the Egyptian workers found a cause for worry. The lucky canary left in Carter's house near the entrance of the valley had been gobbled up by a cobra that had found its way into the bird's cage. Here they knew was an open royal tomb. They knew, too, that Egyptian royalty was protected by the cobra, the goddess Wadjet, whose image rose from the front of the royal headdress. There would be a death, they said. An earlier excavator, Henry Rand, had once described the Valley of the Kings. Deep in the mountains, a break in the desert range opens up a narrow defile with many windings, leads up to a desolate glen closed in by the Herod Hills. The Valley of the Shadow of Death could offer no picture more sternly embalmatic. Stray footprints in the sand of hyenas and jackals, although dim evidence of life, speak rather of the haunts of death. All this began to change as the first of hundreds of thousands of tourists came flocking to the valley to gaze at the entrance of the tomb and to pester the discoverers to let them enter. Soon, according to the Daily Telegraph, the road leading to the rock-enclosed ravine was packed each day with vehicles and animals of every variety. It's that time again! Our sponsor this week is Garden Weasel. Garden Weasel is the leading brand of professional-grade multi-use garden tools, 
It was designed with the consumer experience in mind. With more than a dozen specific purpose garden tools and 40 plus years of experience, Garden Weasel stands the test of time and makes lawn and garden work more efficient and productive. Garden Weasel tools include the original and best-selling Garden Weasel Cultivator, Weasel Claw Pro, and the Garden Weasel Nut Gatherer. Well, that's an added treat. And place emphasis on ergonomic features to alleviate strain on the body. You know, sometimes after a long day of nut gathering, my back's killing me. And it helps gardeners keep upright with less repetitive bending. All of Garden Weasel gardening tools are engineered to deliver the highest quality and durability with balanced weight and ergonomic grips. Garden Weasel, Weasel <laughs> Garden Weasel, I almost did it. Garden Weasel tools are truly solutions from the ground up. Now back to In Dark Places. Thanks, Garden Weasel. Carnivon returned to England for a while to make some arrangements of his own, including the sale to the Times of the exclusive right to report developments. By the middle of February, however, he was back in Luxor. The outer chamber had been cleared, and he and Carter were ready to knock down the wall that blocked the doorway to the inner room. They invited perhaps as many as 40 people to watch them do it on the afternoon of February 17th. After a couple hours' work, the doorway was opened, and Carter and Carnivon were able to slip into the narrow space around the golden shrines within the inner chamber. A few days later, they closed up the tomb again, planning to leave the next stage of the clearance until the end of the year. By now, both men were suffering from stress. Their relationship with the Egyptian government had deteriorated into a quarrel over who owned the find and who should have access to the tomb. Carter was working long hours in dreadful conditions to record and preserve the goods that they had taken from the tomb. One evening, Carnivon called on Carter at his house. The two men quarreled fiercely, and Carter told Carnivon to leave. Although Carnivon wrote a conciliatory letter, it is possible that this was the last conversation they had. By the end of February, Carnivon was clearly in poor health. He looked pale and exhausted. His teeth chipped and fell out. His temperature soared as he was shaken by a fever that came and went. Earlier in March, he moved to Cairo, and for a while, his condition improved. Then it worsened once again. His wife, Lady Almina, set out for England. His son, Lord Pochester, from India. On March 26, the secretary wrote to Carter to inform him that Carnivon had blood poisoning. Carter, too, traveled to Cairo. By April 4th, all had gathered in the Continental Savoy Hotel. Carnivon had long since sunk into a coma. His wife, son, and daughter were waiting for the end. Just before 2 a.m., the nurse came in to say that Carnivon had died. He was 57. At that point, the lights in the hotel flickered, 
and went out. And all Akira was plunged into darkness as the electricity was cut off. Five minutes later, it came back on. The Cairo Electricity Company had always been erratic, but no one ever did produce an explanation for that particular breakdown. Back in England, at that same moment, allowing for the difference in time, Carnivon's fox terrier, Susan, began to howl and then died to the consternation of the Scottish housekeeper at Highclere Castle. The legend of the curse took root in fertile ground. Almost immediately, newspapers began printing reports of the hieroglyphics carved above the entrance of the tomb that threatened, Death shall come to him who touches the tomb. Some added that further warnings came to light within the tomb. Among them, this one, Death will slay with wings whoever disturbeth the peace of the pharaohs. It is true that some tombs that have been found are apparently protected by curses directed against those who seek to break in. It is also true that these curses are all-embracing. One reads, As for anyone who shall disregard it, Amun, king of gods, shall pursue him. He shall hunger, he shall thirst, he shall faint and sicken. Carter, however, maintained that no curse of this kind had been found in King Tut's tomb. The nearest thing to such a threat was a tiny lamp placed on the floor in front of the golden shrines, which carried the words, I prevent the sand from choking the secret chamber. I am for the protection of the deceased. Still the legend grew, and although few may really believe that the guardian spirits of the long-dead king can actually send death to stalk the 20th century, fewer still are willing to condemn the curse as total nonsense. Carnivon's son has always held that he neither believes in nor dismisses the curse. He told Philip Vandenberg, author of The Forgotten Pharaoh, that shortly after his father's funeral, an unknown woman came to Highclair Castle. She said her name was Wilma, that the dead man's spirit lived on in her, and that the son should not go near his father's grave. He never has. A number of archaeologists and tourists who visited the tomb were taken ill and died soon after. Although it could be argued that they were old and ill already, or that the combination of travel, dusty heat, and excitement was just too much. Professor James Henry Breasted, one of the gathering at the opening of the inner chamber, experienced a feverish illness. Although he carried on working in the tomb itself, and lived another 12 years before dying at the age of 70. Professor Lafleur paid a visit to the tomb on his first day in Luxor and died that very night in the hotel room next door to Breasted. An American multimillionaire, George J. Gould, died suddenly after developing a fever on the day that he visited the tomb. A.C. Mace, one of Carter's assistants, gave up the job in 1924 after attacks of fever and died in 1928. Another assistant, Richard Bethel, died of circulatory failure at the age of 45. All these deaths could perhaps be explained by some reasonable, believable, natural source. Maybe bacteria were lurking among the stirred-up dust. Forensic scientist Alfred Lucas 
had taken samples the day after the opening of the inner chamber, but although one showed positive, he pronounced the bacteria harmless. Maybe the fungus that covered the walls in the tomb triggered an allergy or infestation. Maybe Legionnaire's disease, infection of the respiratory ducts, affected mainly those whose breathing was shallow and irregular, whether from age or from weakness, or simply from heavy indulgence in alcohol. It was even suggested that the ancient Egyptians had used their expert knowledge of poisons to protect the secrets of their king. Unfortunately for this practical explanation, the notion of the curse has spread to include virtually every untoward occurrence that can be linked with any manifestation of interest in King Tut. In 1926, for example, the British nurse who had tended Lord Carnivon in Cairo died in childbirth at the age of 28. Herbert Winlock, however, who had been present at the opening of the inner chamber as a representative of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, began to make a list of every example tossed up by the public imagination and attacked the idea that the deaths testified to the power of the curse. One particular unconvincing case that he cited was that of Prince Ali Fami Bey, who, if he visited the tomb at all, did so as an unrecorded tourist. He died in the Savory Hotel, London, murdered by his French wife, and yet was instantly designated a victim of the curse. Perhaps all this was just a hoax and suddenly acquired a serious focus on Carnivon's death. Perhaps public attention itself has produced an artificially heightened awareness of every incident that has apparently confirmed the existence of the curse. Or perhaps King Tut should have been left undisturbed. The Curse of the Iceman Back in 1991, the body of an Iceman was discovered in the Alps. It was estimated that the body dates back to over 5,000 years. But after this discovery, seven of the people who found him died over the course of 13 years, which would have been acceptable had they been of natural causes, but not one of them were. For instance, one person died in a car accident. Another was killed in an avalanche. That must hurt. Another died from accidentally falling off a cliff. Whoopsie. And another from a rare blood disorder. The Iceman Curse is currently one of the famous, most famous curses of modern times. The Mystery of the Hope Diamond Curse by Benjamin Radford. Thanks, Benjamin. Diamonds have fascinated mankind for centuries. And it's not surprising that folklore and superstitions have arisen involving good and bad luck associated with them. One of the most spectacular gems in the world is the Hope Diamond, a beautiful blue diamond weighing over 45 carats. About the size of a walnut, the stone is estimated to be worth a quarter of a billion dollars. 
However, there are many people who would think twice about buying it, for it is said to be cursed. Carl Shucker, in his book, The Unexplained, relates the origin of this jeopardist gem. It sparkled in the brow of the Indian temple idol until it was impetuously plucked out of the thieving Hindu priest. Mm-hmm. See, because his name is Carl, so he's going to be Carl. <laughs> Whose punishment for this unholy act was a slow and agonizing death, I reckon. It was apparently unearthed in the Glaconda mines by the Krishna River in southwest India, I reckon. And it made its European debut in 1642 when it was bought by French merchant King Louis XIV for a handsome profit. Mm-hmm. But was mauled to death by a pack of wild dogs. Killed him dead. The diamond remained with the French royal family until it was stolen in 1792 during the French Revolution. Louis XIV and Marie Antoinette, who were beheaded, are often cited as victims of the curse. The diamond was missing for a few decades and was recut into a smaller gem. There are unconfirmed reports that it belonged to British King George IV, whose estate sold it to pay for his enormous debts. In 1839, the diamond was acquired by Henry Thomas Hope, which is how it got its name. After Hope's death, the diamond passed through the hands of several owners. The misfortune attributed to the diamond, which drained the imagination of soap opera writers, Owners committed suicide, they were murdered, left penniless through bad investments. Those who came in contact with the diamond suffered failed marriages, dead children, drug addiction, insanity. The Hope Diamond is the most famous cursed diamond in the world, but it is only one of many. In fact, there are dozens of others. According to the Giant Book of Superstition by Claudia de Lis, Diamond superstitions are now found everywhere in the world. A typical Eastern superstition is that the possession of extremely large diamonds always brings misfortune. A long history of blood, theft, intrigue, loss of empire, loss of life, and disasters belongs to each of the most celebrated diamonds, and for the most part, the stories are historically true. This fact only strengthens the belief in the minds of the superstitious that large diamonds are the cause of misfortune. Of their owners. The Hope Diamond Curse story is in some ways a morality fable about the cardinal sin of greed. The original thief, according to legend, died a slow and painful death while the later owners, oblivious to the curse until it was too late, suffered as well. It was said that only a person with a pure heart could escape a doomed fate. In this case, a pure heart meaning someone who did not try to sell it but instead generously gave it away. Thus the curse, indeed if there was a curse, ended when jeweler Harry Winston donated it into the Smithsonian Institute in 1958, where it can be seen today. The Curse of the Dead Man's Chair
dead man's chair. This one dates back to the 18th century. Legend has it that anyone who dares sit on Busby's stoop chair will die soon after. It all started in North Yorkshire back in uh, 1702. Somehow, the town drunk, a man by the name of Thomas Busby, managed to carry to marry the beautiful Elizabeth Aughty. However, her father was vehemently opposed to the marriage, as he thought his daughter could do better. One day, Busby returned home to find his father-in-law sitting in his favorite chair. Audie announced he was there to take his daughter home. Like any reasonable man, he bludgeoned his father-in-law to death with a hammer and hid the body. But it wasn't about the daughter. It was about that chair all along. As he was being led to his execution, he reportedly shouted that anyone who sat on his favorite chair would die. The inn where Busby lived with his wife was renamed the Busby Stoop Inn, and the chair has supposedly claimed an untold number of lives over the past 300 years. In 1968, Tony Earnshaw took over the inn. Earnshaw was not a superstitious man. He initially dismissed the Busby curse as nonsense and the previous deaths associated with it as coincidences. But then people started dying on his watch. First, Earnshaw overheard two RAF airmen daring each other to sit on the chair. Both did, and both died in a car crash the next day. Day. Then there was a group of builders who came into the pub at lunchtime and dared a young laborer to sit on the chair. The brave wee lad obliged, and that same day he fell off a roof and cracked his skull open on the concrete below. That was the last straw for Tony Earnshaw. He begged a museum to take the chair off his hands, but only if they agreed to never let anyone sit on it. For nearly 30 years, despite many requests, no one has been allowed to tempt the curse. Dead Man's Chair! And that's about all the stories about curses we have for you this week. And that might be kind of bone you out and you're wondering, oh gee, golly, do I have a curse on me? Well, I've got good news. I have 15 signs that you may be cursed. Number one, inexplicable illness and or injury. If you are a healthy person overall and start coming down with inexplicable illness or random injuries, this may be a sign of a curse. Keep in mind, Illness is typically in reaction to some other issue going on in your body, mind, or spirit. So first examine yourself as a whole before jumping to the curse notion. That being said, curses and hexes can be put on people to make them ill and waste away and 
if this is an illness that the doctors can't even figure out, this may be a curse or hex working against you. Number two, string of bad luck. Typically, you are a person of good fortune. Things tend to go your way within reason. Now, within the past few weeks or months, you seem to be dealing with an unshakable string of bad luck. Again, before jumping to the curse conclusion, examine your decisions in life. Is this bad luck reactionary to your poor actions in life? If the answer is no, you may have someone trying to curse you. Bad luck includes financial problems, health issues, transportation and vehicle problems. I don't know. <laughs> I think I'm a candidate. Number three, you're involved in a witch war. While most people in the witch community want to believe every other witch and magical individual is loving and kind, particularly to their own kind, the truth is not everyone is about the love and light. If you are a witch or pagan and have been a part of a pagan community, chances of you being cursed by another witch will increase tenfold from the layperson. The truth is, when jealousy or drama comes into play, a witch might be more prone to curse another witch than a non-witch. So if you have a witch throwing shade at you, he or she might also be trying to curse you. Number four, strange animal occurrences. A common sign of a curse includes strange animal appearances, disappearances, and illnesses. The individual doing the cursing could potentially send an animal familiar to spy on you and bring you bad luck. Is there an animal that seems to be sticking around, checking you out more than usual? Have you found a dead or dying animal at your doorstep recently? Or have your pets come down with illness or death? Unfortunately, animals are subject to curses too. Number five, broken glass. Are you finding broken glass on your doorsteps or in your front yard seemingly out of nowhere? This is one of those common signs of a curse that dates back centuries. In conjure and hoodoo traditions, bottles filled with cursing ingredients are thrown at an enemy's doorstep or front door and when broken, they release the hex. Plus, it hurts to step on broken glass with bare feet, doesn't it? In addition, if you are personally breaking glass three times or more in one day's time, it's a sign of a curse. Number six, your guides are warning you of a curse. This is a big one, and one that you can always trust. Your guides will warn you if you are under a spiritual attack of some kind. This is a sign of a curse that you can trust. Signs will come in different forms, including random conversations, symbols in nature, on TV, etc. Ask them to confirm their warnings. If you're unsure, your guides will warn you in a dream. Number 7. Random Negative Thoughts you're typically a positive, optimistic person, but suddenly you're having depressing, maybe even suicidal thoughts. You've noticed these thoughts don't seem to be coming from inside, but they seem like they're an outside source. Make note that these thoughts are not your own. This could be a sign of a curse and that you're under spiritual attack. Number 8. Broken Relationships 
In addition to one or more of the above signs of a curse, sudden broken relationships could indicate spiritual attack. This could be any type of relationship. Family, romantic, platonic, etc. Curses seem to destroy lives, and what better way to tear someone apart than to split them from their loved ones? Number 9. Strange Objects on Your Property Curses can truly only take root when the person being cursed fuels it with their own fear and negativity. So if you find strange objects or symbols or things on your property that don't belong to you and seem to smell like evil magic, this could be a sign that someone is trying to curse you. Number 10. Missing Personal Items It's easiest for someone to curse you if they have a piece of your personal property. Are you missing anything personal, such as underwear, <laughs> a hairbrush, jewelry, keys? These items carry your DNA and are often used by witches to curse individuals. If someone's been in your home recently and something personal has gone missing, this could be a sign of a curse. Number 11. Bad Omens When some people see an owl or a blackbird, immediately they think it's a bad omen. This isn't always the case, but seeing an omen in conjunction with other signs of a curse could confirm your suspicions. Some bad omens include a bird flying into a closed window and dying, a woodpecker knocking on your door, six crows on the eve, an unexplained high-pitched wailing outside, dead animals on your doorstep or front porch, and the chirp of a death watch beetle. Number 12. Bad weather over your house. Depending upon the severity and power of the person cursing you, the weather over your house or property will be worse than everywhere else in town. Similar to how Eeyore always had a cloud over his head, except this will be over your home. Dark clouds, rain, fog, tornadoes. Number 13. Feelings of being watched. If someone is spying on you, they could be sending spirits and animals to watch you. If you get the feeling you are being watched, even when you're home alone, this could be a sign of a curse. Number 14. Nightmares and Recurring Dreams Our guides and our higher selves often try to warn us through our dreams. If you have a recurring dream in which someone is breaking into your house, stealing from you, or invading your space, this is a sign that you are under psychic attack. Nightmares are a side effect of curses and hexes. The individual cursing you is using this to instill fear in your mind and soul. Don't let them. Sleep paralysis and night terrors are an indication that someone is sending evil spirits to plague you at night. And number 15. Threatening letters or emails. No surprise here. If you're receiving strange and or threatening letters in your mail or in your email inbox, this could indicate that someone is cursing you. The letter or email itself could be magically charged with negativity. So keep a lookout. The letter might not be threatening in its message, but the vibe might tip you off. And that's all the show for this week. Thanks as always, Jimmy Haunted. Be sure to wish Jimmy a happy birthday this Saturday. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. God bless you.